Welcome to another episode of Andy Here's the 80s, episode 6, our post-punk episode. I'm your host, Andy, looking through the 1980s to find music worth adding to my collection. Joining me, as always, is Aaron Keck. Thank you. Now, post-punk, as I said, is our topic for this week. Uh, I've got five albums here that kind of um, exemplify the genre as well as show a little of the variety in it. and uh, really, I think I I thought this is a pretty strong batch of albums. Uh, Aaron, what do you think? Yeah, I was uh, I I'm gonna go ahead and disagree with you on that one, <laughs> Andy. Uh, we had this conversation kind of before we started that uh, post punk is not my thing, as it turns out. <laughs> Although very much like new wave, which is what we just did in the previous episode, right? Mm-hmm. Post punk is a genre that lacks a definition almost. It comes to mean anything and everything in the early 1980s. So there is kind of something for everyone in the genre insofar as there was a period when literally everything was starting to be characterized mm-hmm. as either post-punk or pseudo-post-punk or something right. along those lines. So there are two albums in here that I really do like. Mm-hmm. The other three, I could take or leave. <laughs> well, we will start off, uh, well, before we get into anything, um, as kind of a little primer, post-punk kind of evolved, obviously, out of the punk scene. Mm-hmm. Um the Sex Pistols especially were a band that a lot of these groups saw and were inspired by and looked at them and said, wow, I guess really anybody can make music if they exactly. want to. Exactly. Uh, and so uh, one of them, the one group that we're not going to listen to, but uh, that started it uh, from Sex Pistols was uh, Public Image Limited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so after the Sex Pistols uh, kind of got fed up with their management, which was from Malcolm McLaren, the owner of the boutique uh, that he and Vivian Westwood ran in England that was kind of the designing the clothing that a lot of the scene would wear. Uh, They got fed up with that and started Public Image Limited, which um, John Lydon himself would describe as uh, danceable noise is kind of what he (laughs) dubbed them as, which is kind of, I think, uh, it kind of fits the whole post-punk sound, I think. I appreciate just how influential punk is. You think Mm -hmm. of punk as... I don't know. It's it's uh, sort of the late nineteen mid to late nineteen seventies movement in rock music that was never necessarily mainstream. Mm-hmm. Like I think about the the Clash and the Ramones as being kind of mainstream bands, but a lot of the other ones that you classify as punk never really made it into the mainstream. But how influential mm-hmm. that genre was. Post punk grows out of it. New wave grows out of it. Yeah. Both of them grow out of the same genre, and both of those terms become kind of catch all terms for literally everything Mm -hmm. in the early 1980s so by the time you get to 82 83 almost anything that's everything that's anything in music can trace itself back to the punk music Mm -hmm. the punk movement which i think is super cool yeah it's kind of that uh like the velvet underground effect right yeah nobody listened to them then but everybody who did started Started a band band. yep yep uh and so the sex pistols broke up they started public image limited uh in 1978 just literally months after Sex Pistols broke up. Mm. Um, and then at that same time, all these uh, p- artists who were seeing the Sex Pistols and being influenced by them started their own bands, like uh, Joy Division, which will be our first band. They formed in around that same time after seeing a Sex Pistols show. They formed their group and sort of like Public Image, you know, got a more moodier sound, a more less like three chord thrashing around sound and more. It kept the same kind of energy sometimes, but 
with a little bit more artistic intent. Right. And I think the, the movement away from the three chord mm-hmm. melody progression is extremely important, right, for post-punk yeah. because you're talking about... And this, the Sex Pistols, I think, are kind of the epitome of this because punk music originates as this very in-your-face provocative challenge to mm-hmm. the mainstream but at the same time, it's still very much mainstream in terms of the musical style. It's melodious, right. there's harmony, there's tonality, there's the three-chord progression. It's very yeah. simple. A lot of punk songs, and the Ramones are a classic mm-hmm. example of this, if you slow it down just a little bit, it's the Beach Boys. Yeah. It's almost the same in terms, of the, in terms of the musicality of it. So in that sense, it's not really moving away from the mainstream. Simultaneously, the Sex Pistols... And we've talked about this, mm-hmm. and this is my favorite thing about the Sex Pistols, is a band that is formed by a, by an entrepreneur mm-hmm. who wants to sell clothes right. and forms this band in order to sell merchandise, basically. So it's a sellout genre from the very beginning, uh-huh. but in it are all of these people who are fundamentally opposed to selling out. So they're like, okay, how can we continue down this road right. of being challenging and in your face and provocative but without selling out well let's move away from the three chord progression let's mm-hmm. move away from the sort of standard popness of punk that makes it accessible right and let's move into something that's more challenging musically in addition to more challenging in terms of just being in your face on stage of course at the same time that makes post-punk music much more inaccessible right. and that's <laughs> what that's the the contrast there. Yeah, it, and yeah, all of these kind of genres that spin off from punk, they have that they each reach a separate part of the audience that might have been interested in punk, right? Yeah, so yeah. It's like taking that. It, it's it's a weird like rather than getting diluted, it's almost each kind of strain becomes a little stronger. I think and mm-hmm. finds a more passionate audience than just the punk scene did. yep yep yeah see also i think modern art right yeah. because modern art is very much a challenge to sort of existing ideas of what art is those existing ideas are very class-based like it's it's top down it's the elite defining what art is and what's great to the masses and then you've got people who say no we can be we can be more democratic we can challenge this existing kind of superstructure that serves to benefit an elite mm-hmm. at the expense of everyone else but in order to do that we have to be really challenging in the way that we present things and by doing that you'll lose a lot of that mass audience that you say you're uh, speaking to mm-hmm. and it ends up being this really fascinating kind of contrast dilemma with modern art uh being sort of starting from this place of we want to be provocative we want to challenge the mainstream we want to challenge the superstructure and then it finds very limited passionate and in Mm -hmm. a lot of cases i think elite audiences and the same thing with post-punk right you start from this place of we want to challenge and i think a couple of these bands are very hardcore radical lefty socialist uh sort of mass-based movements but Mm -hmm. they do it in a very very uh Oh, what's the word? Um, vanguard kind of style, where you're only speaking to a few people, right? Yeah, yeah it's a, it's that um, avant-garde. You know, yeah. The thing about avant-garde is it either stays avant-garde or gets adopted yep. by the masses, yep. right? Yeah. So, Joy Division uh, released their first album in 1979. That was Unknown Pleasures, 
1980 saw the release of Closer, which is the one we're going to listen to. I'm going to play the first track off of it. This is uh, Atrocity Exhibition. can't whistle that <laughs> no you don't uh that one uh yes it, it never got stuck in my head in the grocery store yeah, like right. some of the other songs but i think um you know it's a very joy division in general has a very evocative sound i think there's not many other groups uh that sound like joy division uh, you know some of the ones we'll hear sort of do but this is uh they're kind of their own beast yeah yeah, definitely. I I think one of my we talked about this uh, I think last week when we were talking about New Order, right? Was that, yeah, that yeah. was last week where New Order comes out with their single Blue Monday, mm-hmm. and then they come out with an album which uh, they come they release it at basically the same time. But Blue Monday is not right. on it because you know you can't tell us what to do. <laughs> yeah. So everyone goes to the record store to buy this album, and then they all go home disappointed because Blue Monday is <laughs> not on it until they have to start sticking the label. Blue Monday is not on this album. Joy Division did the same thing. Mm-hmm. This album, this is the album, right, that comes out at the same time as Love Will Tear this, Us uh, Apart, right? Yeah, Love Will Tear Us Apart releases a single one month before yeah. the album. This so album this came album out. comes out at the time when everyone is listening mm-hmm. to this huge hit and they go to the record store and yeah. get this album and it's not on it. And obviously the uh, and New Order comes from Joy Division. Joy Division uh, right. Ian Curtis, the singer for Joy Division, uh, committed suicide in 1980, just two months before this album would come out. And it was just the day before they were about to leave to go on an American tour. Yep. Um, he was only... Tw- 23, I Yeah, think. 23. Yeah. So very young. This is obviously their second and final album. Which also really underscores how great an artist ian curtis was Mm -hmm. that they produce music this high quality and he's 23 years old yeah only 23 years old uh ian curtis uh along with 
Bernard Sumner, who played guitar for the band Peter Hook, was the bassist, Stephen Morris, the drummer. All those three would go on to, to form New Order. Um, and it, this this album, to me, listening to it, it kind of had a similar effect that, like, listening to In Utero did now, where, like, you can't really... It's hard to separate the fact that Ian Curtis died so mm-hmm. close to this album's release. Um and whereas like Kurt Cobain died like just a few months after, like I know in Utero was 93 and he died in 94, but there's so much listening to it, like so much context that is just changed yeah. by that. I get that actually not listening to in utero, but listening to the unplugged album oh, yeah. from Nirvana. Which was but yeah, same thing, yeah. same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so some of this, it's a little tough. I mean, it, it's evocative of, something that it didn't necessarily intend to be evocative of when they were making it. Right, right. right. And even the cover, which has a picture of a tomb on it, was chosen uh, before he committed suicide. But yeah. you still, you know, the band members themselves would say uh, that while they were making the music, you know, they didn't necessarily listen to his lyrics. You know, he he had uh, he dealt with uh, epilepsy close to the end of his life and always possibly had some misdiagnosed uh, mm. bipolar and depression but you know they were just they were a band of young guys in England making music they didn't necessarily think that it was life or death yeah, yeah. until he had his he did have until one was, suicide yeah. ascent, uh, suicide attempt before the successful one which was maybe an earlier warning sign right but, right but yeah so it's hard to separate that sometimes but so what is what is your thought about this album i think ultimately I kind of still like Unknown Pleasures better, which uh, I think I've, I've seen a lot of people say that they consider this one their better one, but I kind of like Unknown Pleasures. A, it doesn't have that same, it's still dark and depressing, but <laughs> it's a little more, it's their first album, right? right? So they're a little more full of uh, youthful ex- energy. Youth, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're a little more, I don't want to say experimental because there's definitely raw maybe it's a little more raw yeah, yeah it's a little i mean more... and that's definitely the case with that sort of transition right between mm-hmm. punk music and post-punk music is that with punk music you really want to embrace the rawness and yeah. with post-punk music they're going off in this avant-garde direction so you end up embracing much more kind of high quality or advanced kind of musical technique and then mm-hmm. it's just a question of what you prefer right yeah yeah yeah, so it ultimately comes down to preference. I still like this one a lot, but yeah, Unknown Pleasures, I think is a little more fun to me. Yeah. This is an album, and again, we'll, I'll say the same thing about, I think, definitely three and maybe four of these five albums that we're doing. This is an album that I appreciate the quality of. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to listen to it again, right? <laughs> yeah. It also, you know, like, Level Terrace Apart mm-hmm. is like, that's a great pop song. That's a great pop song, yeah. And it's danceable, it's yeah. tonal. Nothing's quite as uh you know, the closest thing is probably track two on there, which is um that doesn't list it on the back. Whatever the second track is called, it has that this kind of This band synthy, just uh, spits in everyone's face yeah. with their packaging. We're not <laughs> gonna put our isolation. Isolation is the that's name right. of the is the name of the song. Yeah, this band like we're not gonna we're gonna come out with these great popular singles, but we're not gonna make them accessible <laughs> yeah. when you buy our album. We're not gonna put the track listing on the back so that you can be aware <laughs> that the single is not on the album. Yeah, 
Screw you, Joy yeah, Division yeah. and New Order. At least this has uh, the name of the band on it, right? Which Power Corruption and Lies did not. Yeah. But not on the front. You have to turn it over to the back <laughs> yeah. to get... Uh, this just says closer with a picture of a tomb. Yeah. Of course, no track maybe listing. two months after suicide, probably most people would look at that and recognize it, right? It probably was in the news. Maybe. I don't know. There weren't as many there weren't as many websites at the time. So <laughs> yeah. People had to get their information from the rumor mill and mm-hmm. Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah. The next up is uh, from March of 1981. We have Gang of Four's Solid Gold, which is their second album. Uh, the band named after the group of Chinese communist uh, defectors. Or, I don't remember the, the I don't know the entire situation of the Gang of Four. But... I honestly don't either. <laughs> This was a group of, what, anti-Maoist defectors who got... I think one of them yeah. was related to... I don't know. I'm mm-hmm. coming at, I'm coming from a place of I know virtually nothing yeah. about this, so to, so to say anything more is just to make myself mm-hmm. sound like an idiot, so I'm just going to stop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I'm doing this to learn more about 1980s music. If I don't know about 80s music, I definitely don't know about 80s politics. Right, so. right. I don't think it was 80s politics either with the Gang of Four. I think that was earlier. Than, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it been. had to have been because Gang of Four was a 1970s band, True, right? Yeah. This is a... Yeah, they they is, formed in the 70s around the same yep. time as, as uh, Joy Division and, all, and most of the other ones we'll hear. Uh, so yeah, seventies. Uh, when did uh, Mal mid seventies? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Gang of Four is is the one, and I guess Mission of Burma is the other one that we're we're also going to cover. Where you can kind of tell where their politics is just by where they're coming from mm-hmm. with their name. Yeah, uh, that Gang- this is this is a band with political sensibilities and probably left wing political. Yeah, Gang of Four is definitely the most overtly political yes. band. Uh, they uh, they they considered themselves. Uh, interested in situationist politics which was a left-wing critique of capitalism that was kind of like anti-materialism anti-consumerism uh which uh, the irony is not lost to me that we're talking about it on a show where i'm talking about collecting cds uh but still i think the the music uh hey uh, you know i'm not it sounds good and i don't disagree with them necessarily yeah yeah it is a really, I mean, and like you, you get this with just post punk in general. Like it's a, it's a really fun hodgepodge of contrast, uh-huh. right? There's this band that is leftist, anti-capitalist, socialistic, and they are sort of presenting their their movement to the world in the most commercial form of artistic expression there is, <laughs> right. which is like modern post 1950s pop music mm-hmm. or the whole ton of rock music industry and it really is an industry i right. mean we're we're sitting here with this cd which is uh which is a re-release mm-hmm. um on a major label uh to make uh to, to cash in on the popularity of this band right uh it's fascinating yeah i think music maybe more than any other like commercial art form has always had an interesting line to toe between like artistic sensibility and making money, you know, like making a living, making art, you know, I think there's always a, there's a tough line to toe between how much, like that's where when an artist sells out, right? No artist seems to sell out more than a music artist does, or at least get criticized for that. Yeah. Yeah. So gang of four, uh, this the CD re-release we're looking at. It has uh, also at the end of it the Another Day Another Dollar EP, which came out the following year in '82. 
Uh, let's go ahead and listen to a song from Solid Gold. Uh, this is what we all want. A lot of these albums, when I was listening to them, I was imagining Ali Sheedy's character In listening the to one. them and imagining, like, yeah, this makes sense. Uh-huh. Like, And I'm not even referring to any particular Ali Sheedy character. Just, just like all of them in, yeah. in John Hughes movies. Like, her character would listen to these mm-hmm. albums, which is, I guess, high praise? I don't know. <laughs> and maybe she did. But she know, very well may have. We some of these, some of these are bands that Ali Sheedy's character would not listen to because she herself is not cool enough for, uh, or avant garde right. enough for these bands. I like, like, I wear dark makeup, but come on. But, right. <laughs> I, I think uh, the thing that I liked about Gang of Four compared to all the other ones is this is probably the most danceable noise, right? I think this mm. they had a lot of really good drum and bass, like the rhythm section in this is really good. I think. Um, this is almost, except for the last one we'll hear, maybe the most catchy. I think this is, the songs on here were the ones I most found uh, remembering and, and thinking back to it before, okay. like without it. But. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad I have forgotten this entire album. <laughs> and I listened to it, I think, two days ago. Yeah. So uh, I, I, was not as, I was not as captured by it uh, as you. What was it? Is it just the kind of the... the the drum and the percussion in the it, it's good sense. rhythm i like the guitar sound too that kind of squealing guitar that's mm. like it the high-pitched treble come like contrasting like that rhythm uh and bass in the back it also reminds me of a band i liked from the early 2000s uh, called q and not you uh, mm. out of dc that have a very similar kind of dance post-punk kind, okay. of, kind of sound because that is the the really cool thing about this whole genre is that it's a very challenging genre of music that achieves a really high level of popularity Mm -hmm. in the early 1980s and i'm kind of racking my brain to think of is there anything like this that's come along in the last 15 20 years like this century even are there bands that produce music this challenging that that get buzz that get airplay that get talked about and i don't know Mm -hmm. off the top of my head i can't think of any yeah it is you know it's funny to see i think as you know, a lot of these, there's a lot of people who are kind of are getting more influenced by the 80s, at least overtly right now. 
And I think, uh, so it is funny to see little, like little things pop up here and there. There's even, um, going back to Joy Division, there was a, uh, there's a rapper released an album called Atrocity Exhibition, which is another like just out of left field reference. Yep, They're referencing yeah. even a, a science fiction novel, but to, he's a, to reference that reference in yeah, the modern yeah. like t- 2010, 2012 pop or like, you know, hip hop album yeah. is another like, and that's where it is. Like that's yeah. where the experimentation is happening is in hip hop today. Rock mm-hmm. music is rock music and kind of alternative pop, kind of that harder Right. Uh, pop sensibility. I don't think the I don't think the avant-garde. I don't think the experimentation is around anymore. Certainly not on high levels where you would right. sort of recognize a band outside of the particular locality that mm-hmm. they're in. Hip hop music, yeah, yeah. You're, you're getting it there, especially where you're, you know, an art form where you're digging through crates of records to yes. find samples yeah, yeah, yeah. to use. You know, think you're going to pick up on things you might not have found otherwise, yeah. which is part of you know having these albums get reissued and get you know find in formats that people can still listen to or more than just the hipster record collectors (laughs) will listen to like it's part of keeping it alive right yeah and keeping that influence around yeah but then also like mass reproducing this Mm -hmm. socialistic (laughs) anti-industry yeah uh music yeah this re-release is is on emi which Mm -hmm. i don't know that their original one was on or not but uh I didn't write that down. But yeah, you would think it probably not, right? If you're Yeah, yeah. Hopefully not. Otherwise yeah. you're otherwise you're negating your whole enterprise right from <laughs> yeah. the beginning. And and then as soon as you decide not to negate your whole enterprise, then you're uh then you're letting yourself slip into, okay, well we're not gonna reach out to mm-hmm. any audience at all. Right. I and mean, that's the problem with the the music industry right the only way to reach an audience is to sell out to the industry right so if you are kind of an anti-sellout genre either you're never going to get airplay which very well may be the case today there might be lots of great bands out there that have made that decision Mm -hmm. and therefore you never hear of them Uh, or you do sell out in which case you do get airplay you do get your message out there and you've become part of the machine right yeah Yeah. and in the 1980s certainly like if you were going to survive as a band, there were certain compromises you'd have to make. Right? Yeah, you have to now, make a video for MTV. Yeah. Nowadays, you can, I don't know about make a living, but you can get by releasing things independently mm-hmm. online and yeah. just selling t-shirts that you make at your show or whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah. you can eke out a living that way probably, But and some people uh, do. But yeah, 30 plus years ago, there were machines you had to work within. Yep, right? yep. All right, what's next? Next up, we've got uh, Susie and the Banshees' fourth album, Juju, which released in June of 1981. Uh, Susie and the Banshees, another band that kind of formed out of uh, uh, out of that Sex Pistols influence, right? Susie Sue w- uh, went to see the Sex Pistols play in the late 70s, became friends with the band, and formed her own group uh, in the, around the same time. They, they released their first album in 1978, right alongside um, Public Image Limited's first mm-hmm. uh, first record. Uh, Juju, their fourth one was released in 81, like I said. Uh, their one before this, Kaleidoscope, was released in 1980, which had a little bit more of electronic, almost a new wave type of sound, but then this one was kind of a return to form uh, for the band. Susie Sue, the vocalist, Stephen Severin on bass, John McGoke on guitar, and drummer Budgie. Budgie. Just Budgie. Yeah. Budgie and Susie dated in the 80s, I think. I read somewhere. Yeah, I think yeah. that's true. 
Everyone dated everyone. <laughs> it was <laughs> the a, 80s. Yeah, the, the small circle. You know, you know. This is the one that I was, I think, most excited about because mm -hmm. I knew a lot about Susie and the Banshees without having listened to them. And this I like. This is yeah. this is one of the, the two uh, albums that we're doing this week that I would go back and, and re-listen to okay. again. Yeah. yeah, I thought this one was a good one, too. And, and another thing, yeah, it's, I was kind of the same boat. I knew of Susie and the Banshees, mm -hmm. but never really listened to them before. Uh, but they also, a lot of energy, great guitar mm -hmm. and rhythm section, and vocals are obviously great, too. Yeah, yeah. Was and I mean, Susie really stands out as sort of the, the front man or front woman of the band, but the mm -hmm. guitarist gets a lot of... Uh, a lot of praise for being like one of the great guitarists yeah. in rock history. Is, yeah, you know, influential a lot of, yeah. on a lot of other artists in that in that decade. The guitarist whose name neither of us will say again because neither of us know how to pronounce his last name. Yeah. Mago, McGill. John. John, yeah. Just John. It's Susie, it's Budgie, and it's John. <laughs> Susie, Budgie, go. John, yeah. yeah. Uh, which uh, which song on here do, do you want to hear? Oh, I, I don't have a... There's none that stand out here. Let's play... Uh, we'll start with the first... The first one's pretty good. Yeah. This is Spellbound. From the cradle bars comes a beckoning voice that's then spinning. You have no choice. kind of threw me there for a second because i wasn't like thinking of like oh which track should we play but there's gotta be there's gotta be a, a podcast or something in just listening to the first 15 seconds of of albums and just uh -huh. talking about the the vibe that you get just from that immediate because yeah. those are the that's that's the most important 15 seconds of mm -hmm. any album like that's what is going to grab a listener yeah before anything else, it, it establishes the vibe, it establishes the mood, what you're about to experience for the next 35, mm -hmm. 45 minutes, however long the album is. Uh, there's there's a good discussion, I think, in just listening to the first like 30 seconds or minute of all of these yeah. albums and just talking about like how those first few notes grab you. Mm -hmm. I think it's definitely, these are definitely all, all the albums here, I think, put a lot of attention into what their first song was. Right. Mm -hmm. All of these kind oh, yeah. of, uh, they definitely grab you right from the get-go. And yeah, it's, it's 
it's uh, not something that you notice nowadays as much because, you know, if you're listening online on your phone or something, you could come up, you just got it on shuffle, it's going to play in any order. Yeah. People aren't necessarily looking at an album sequence uh, nowadays. Yeah. Maybe more so now than maybe five years ago because people are starting to, uh, there's more and more albums album. that are kind of yeah, being made. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, the first track is an important track. Yeah, always. I think uh, this one too is one that definitely doesn't sound 35 years old, right? This yes. still has a pretty modern sound to it. Yeah. I think that's, I don't know if it, if it has to do with the fact that, I mean, Susie and Debbie Harry, I mm-hmm. think are the two kind of really great female voices in the punk, uh, punk post-punk new wave movement. Yeah. It's a very male dominated mm-hmm. field, right? So I'd the fact Chrissy that Hine they, in there too Oh, Chrissy Hine, week, yeah, yeah, sorry, pretenders. Uh so yeah, those like those three stand out really mm-hmm. strongly against the against the backdrop of this male dominated field. And I think that might be one of the reasons why it holds up as well yeah. as it does because it is so distinct and unique just in terms of the fact that it's a female vocalist before we even talk about anything else mm-hmm. uh, that stands out. And I think that's cool. Yeah. Most of most other female artists that you'd hear on the radio, were going to be pop singers and yeah. stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, to have these voices in such a macho, like mm-hmm. the, the punk scene is obviously, you know, very, testosterone driven yeah to have them they stand out more yeah uh, almost by by default but although they are they are some pretty testosterone driven women too in terms (laughs) of like their uh in terms of their ability to to hold their own and just to be like just as provocative and in your face as anyone else and you think about the the great female vocalists of just like pop rock at the time Mm -hmm. joan jett pat benatar yeah stevie nicks Mm -hmm. uh uh, Grace Slick was still out there, and like there is, yeah, they're all very formidable people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and like you can hear it in the music, you can hear it in the way they just attack the microphone. It's yeah. awesome. They easily hold their own among yeah. any of the singers, uh, not just uh, not just for sounding different, but for sounding mm-hmm. strong and uh, exciting, just yeah. like any other band. Yeah, yeah, they're all. Susie is one of the best singers of the group uh, on, on the, yeah i think know. of the five albums that we're listening to this week Susie shoes is my favorite vocalist yeah i think that's ian curtis was a very strong writer i would say mm-hmm. not the strongest singer of the right, bunch right. i don't think uh and a lot of the other you know gang of four was more about the the music than the vocals performance anyway right. the lyrics are important but and then the next two we'll hear there's there is kind of a post-punk croon i think that a lot of mm-hmm. the guys take on which is kind of a almost loungy kind of like a, like a very baritone yes vocal yes. quality that it's refreshing to not hear that in Susan yeah Banshees. yeah it is uh it is worth spending some time talking about the the vocalists here because i think post-punk is much more uh, about the meaning of the lyrics mm-hmm. that New Wave is. I mean, we were talking about Talking Heads last time with uh, with David Byrne, and and I mean, Stop Making Sense is the title <laughs> of their documentary. Right. Don't worry about the lyrics; just mm-hmm. worry about the sound that you're like. Let the let the vocals be an instrument, right. 
along with all of the other instruments instead of a vehicle for expressing a sentiment or emotion or Mm -hmm. a political message or something like that. With post-punk, you do get the sentiment, the emotion, the political message. So listening to the lyrics becomes much more important, I think, in post-punk than with New Wave. I think that's true. And yeah, that kind of is part of... Because punk, part of punk too was being political. Mm -hmm. And so to... Part of what makes post-punk still from that is holding on to that political yep, uh, ideology yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And one of the reasons that I that I don't love this crop of albums as much is that these albums do have an occasional tendency, and I think we're going to get into this a little bit more when we get to the next album, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Joy Division 2, they have a tendency to sort of move away from the kind of political action uh and more into the uh resigned apathy uh-huh. field of well the world sucks and there's nothing i can do about it right uh, which you also get from a lot of punk music but at least there's a there's a reaction against it mm-hmm. right the world sucks and there's nothing i can do about it so at least let's like get out there and be in your face and provocative and thrash right. around and see if we can do something that way whereas some of these bands you kind of get this i think with new wave too mm-hmm. and uh i read reading about post-punk and it was talking about just sort of the the sort of emptiness of the 1980s as as in terms of sort of music and lyricism mm-hmm. uh, that a lot of music from the early 1980s kind of tends to fall into that <sighs> trap of, right. well, we tried. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You can definitely see that, especially as the music gets a little more subdued. Mm-hmm. So does the attitude of the members of the yeah, band, right? Yeah. At least that's the But you impression. don't get that with Susie and the Banshees. No. Yeah. Like the, the best of what we're listening to this week is much more energetic Mm -hmm. and still like no there's something worthwhile about being publicly openly in your face and provocative and fighting back and speaking out yeah so the next band we're going to hear is actually the only american band uh, of the bunch uh, this week this is uh, mission of burma their album versus which came out in october of 1982 this was their debut full length uh, there are, Rod, let's see, Roger Miller, guitarist, vocalist, Clint Conley, bass and vocalist, Peter Prescott on drums, and then Martin Swope controlling tape loops, which uh, mostly came into play for their live shows. Uh, he's credited on the album as well, but it's... Uh, one interesting thing about them was that they used him. He basically was their sound mixer at their shows and would also just capture clips of audio that would then... He would loop throughout the songs just to basically amp up their sound. Interesting. People, it wasn't necessarily like a sampling for the sake of sampling, but it was more like, how can I enhance, there's only three guys up there, how can I make it sound like right, there's right, 20 right. guys up there? Interesting. So th- their shows were often very loud, very energetic, to the point where um, Roger Miller uh, had to basically leave the band after this, uh, shortly after this album came out because of his worsening tinnitus. From So they were, and they thought the band was over they ended up reuniting uh like in 2002 uh more you know after (laughs) like 20 years of not playing music interesting until his his hearing was better and then they put out a few more albums after that we talk about the the album art here i don't uh i don't know where they're going with this on the album art you've got this picture of like 
ivy flowers growing on a mm-hmm. chain link fence on the front and on the back you've got a grainy picture of buffalo standing in a forest i don't even know what this is yeah i think they're wolves i think and are they wolves I, I oh yeah, yeah yeah i see it now. i actually read about that where they were per- they purposefully put you know this kind of serene floral front cover with yeah. the black and white wolves in the woods on the back as kind of like you know two sides of the coin of what their music would, would could represent i guess yeah you'd have to buy into that uh theory but i think uh you know it's certainly i I like the front cover it's a very uh pleasant uh kind of floral it almost looks like a wallpaper it does right (laughs) yeah i mean down to the font in mission of burma and versus like Uh i could see a wallpaper that includes mission of burma and just like have that pattern repeated (laughs) over and over again be a very noisy dining room (laughs) would be yeah you'd you'd have to uh wear Ear protection. (laughs) Otherwise, you'd have to quit dinner. (laughs) For 20 years. (laughs) Uh, Let's go ahead and take a listen to, you know, we've been talking about lead-off tracks. Let's play the first one off of this one also. just got done talking about how important lyrics are and then we start uh, with <laughs> an, uh, start an minute, album with two minutes yeah. and ten seconds before the lyrics <laughs> jump in so we know nothing yeah 
Jon Snow. I think, uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but we don't know anything, first of all. <laughs> this is why we're doing this in the first place, yeah. right? Like, But uh, I do think it is still like a... It, it falls into that strong opening category where mm-hmm. they're, they really hit you with that wall of sound right away and you capture sort of what they might have sounded like in some dingy Boston club that you went to see him at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I like, too, that uh, the very last song on the album uh, proper, this, the reissue has a few bonus tracks, but the last song, uh, That's How I Escaped My Certain Fate, while they were recording it, they were... They basically ran out of tape before, like three or four bars before the song was over. So uh. they were just about to the end. But uh, I think it was Roger Miller could see that the tape was running out, right? Just because they were recording it live in, in studio, not not all separate tracks. And then, so he he could see the tape, and so he just screamed as loud as he could for the last like measure of the song. Yeah. And so then they put that as the last track to start the album with him screaming and end it with him screaming nice. also. So I thought that was a fun little That's bit cool. of trivia. Why did they call themselves Mission of Burma? They're only uh, the only thing. It's I was reading a, a, a book about um, the music of the air, and they said basically they saw a sign in in a New York, you know, diplomats building it said Mission of Burma, and <laughs> they okay. thought it, thought okay. it sounded evocative, so yeah. they went with it. Okay, That's as good a reason as that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Th- this band was uh, basically they were from. They they formed as a band in Boston, uh, played a lot of local shows, got some local uh, radio play, signed to Ace of Hearts Records to release this originally, which was a Boston independent label. Um, the re- the reissue was released on Matador, which is who they signed with when they reunited. Um, but it is it kind of goes back to what we were saying about how you either have to sell into the machine or nobody hears it, yeah. right? So for this... Part of what this band struggled with was just finding an audience outside of Boston. Yeah. Because they were probably, if they had even formed five years later, it could have been a different story, right? Some of those, some of that infrastructure started to come into place later in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, But forming right at the start of the decade, even the tape loops that he played ran into the same problem that the early hip hop uh, guys did, right? There was there weren't any real ways to sample, so right, they right. had to record stuff live. Interesting. Um, and but they so they kind of became a local favorite, who would start to get some uh, notice as other bands would come into town. So like they were fortunate enough to have partner with a lot of venues that would put a local band as an opener when mm. a bigger band came through. So yep, yep. they opened for Public Image Limited. They opened for Susie and the Banshees, Gang of Four. Um, Black Flag, who would come through and started to lay the groundwork for all the uh, independent touring. Yes. Uh, the, but yeah. I feel for them. I too have trouble finding an audience outside of Boston. <laughs> yeah. Also yeah. inside of Boston, this is really a general problem. Yeah, with the me, whole New England yeah. region. Yeah, I the don't whole. Know. Yeah, it's just a mystery. I haven't tapped into it yet. Yeah. To replace all my R's with H's. <laughs> yeah, that's the first step. It's <laughs> <laughs> what I've been trying. I don't know why it's not working. This was a, this is kind of I like that this is one of the maybe American takes on the post punk genre, right? It still has a punk flavor, especially in the vocals, which we heard just barely at the end of that clip. Uh, but they have that a very raw energy, a very in your face sound that uh, but then still couples with a little bit more complex uh, musicianship than the simply three chords and uh, and has that more drum and bass 
uh, driving rhythm. Do you notice a big difference between like American punk and British punk or American mm. new wave post-punk versus British? Do I notice it? Do you notice a I, big difference? I think, uh, well, I mean, if you look at like take Sex Pistols versus Ramones, mm -hmm. I think uh, there's a, if you, it almost comes down to the lyrics, Really, if you but, if you took out the vocal track for either band, right, you could almost confuse them for one another. I think the Ramones were a little, have that a little more pop, yeah, sound than uh, uh, between the two of them. Did. Yeah, definitely. But uh, I think these subgenres of punk is where you start to maybe see the difference, mm -hmm. right? Because punk, part of why it, the initial punk explosion was so brief. Because there's kind of a lack of nuance, right? Yeah, and then it immediately like branches out. I'm mm -hmm. thinking about this question in the context of the Pretenders, because when we talked about uh -huh. them before, we both had the experience of, oh, they're from Cleveland. I thought they were British the uh -huh. whole time, and right. in fact, they are, except for Chrissy Hine, right? right? Yeah, yeah. So I think there's different. Uh, a lot of it comes down, I think, to the lyrics and vocals, mm -hmm. uh, and not just the not just discerning an accent or not, but like different, uh, even like. There's themes in these that uh, an Englishman would relate to that an American wouldn't, you know. At least I got that feeling. Uh, I was watching, I watched a documentary on Joy Division also, which uh, had a lot of them in in Manchester and how it related to that city. Mm -hmm. And some of it did kind of remind me of like seeing seeing the like the dirty buildings and the bombed out uh, areas of Manchester that people were rebuilding it. It looked, I mean, it looked almost like some of the uh, parts of New York, like that you'd right, see in, right. in uh, the, uh, the hip hop uh, show I watched mm -hmm. on Netflix. So, I mean, there is, there is a similarity in that gritty urban environment mm -hmm. that both countries uh, managed to grow this music in. Yeah. So is it about the, not so much about the country, but about like the location within the country? Like if you grow yeah. up in kind of a, an urban kind of major city that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of hit rock bottom as so many of these cities had in the late seventies, right. early eighties, like the, the sensibility from that sort of immediate environment is going to make a big difference. I think so. I, I think... don't think of Boston as, as ever having bottomed out. Did no, it? I don't think it, I don't think they're necessarily quite as influenced uh, by that, but, uh, I think still there's that overwhelming you know like overarching like reagan era mm -hmm. politics yeah yeah that, but gelled just with the thatcher politics of yep, england so yep. i think you have a lot of common ground in both countries that yeah it's kind of sort of starts to explain why both countries had that or both cities really of like right. london and surrounding areas and new york and surrounding areas had that kind of similar influence interesting so to answer your question, no, I don't. I can't okay, tell the difference between yeah, American I, I and English. I didn't really either. But <laughs> <laughs> the final group. Let's return back to England for Echo and the Bunnymen. Now we get the good stuff. This is probably the most pop oriented of the post punk groups. Yeah, this was this was definitely the the least obviously post punk of the five, mm -hmm. uh, and therefore I think because it's more accessible, because it's popular, yeah. I liked it more. It was also more popular sort of in terms of album sales right as far as sales too, right? this is yeah this is probably the most this is uh ocean rain ocean rain this yeah. is their fourth album came out in may 1984 they, so it's also a little bit later than these other ones right. too right yeah so this is uh yeah like even mission of burn was 82 mm -hmm. uh 80 and 81 this is so this is 
they did start around that same time, late 70s, early 80s. Um, the members of the band, Ian McCullough on vocals, guitar, piano, Will Sargent, guitar, Les Pattinson on bass, Pete DeFritas on drums. Those are the personnel on this album anyway, but uh, they were all mostly there from the start. The band started without a drummer and just had a drum machine. Uh, and so then Pete DeFritas eventually came in to replace the drum machine. But, okay. But they started off... I mean, they have, they never, they always had a sort of a pop sound, mm -hmm. but you can tell the early one is a little more stripped down than obviously this one. This was recorded most of the tracks with a 35 piece orchestra. So little, yeah, yeah not quite as sparse a sound as say Joy Division uh, yeah. was, but. Um, and it's going to be much more, much less dissonant, much more tonal. Yeah, as well. but still very uh, rhythm driven. Mm -hmm. He still has the, the uh, post-punk croon mm -hmm. in the vocals, definitely. Um, the CD reissue also has a, uh, a little live section at the end that was from a channel four show, uh, in the UK, uh, which I think sounds pretty good. It's a little more stripped down acoustic mm -hmm. style, but it, the, a couple of the songs on here, stars are stars and Villiers Terrace are from their debut album. So you can tell that they, they still fit in with their ocean rain, right. uh, songs. Yeah. So I think uh, we should probably just dump right into... Um, are we just... doing track one or are we skipping straight uh, to the killing moon? We're going to skip straight to the killing moon. <laughs> I was tempted, but uh, I can't... A killing moon is probably... It's a great song. It's maybe it's easily the best one of this episode. It, it might even be one of the top songs from this whole show. I think it's probably one of the best songs from the 1980s. Judging it's going to be up there, yeah. Yeah, I think... Look... I can think I of a I can think of a couple tracks off of our off of the 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 week when we did all of the the big the mega big hits. Sure. Yeah, like there are a couple tracks off of Thriller, a couple tracks off of Joshua sure. Tree. It's like all right, if you if you're putting together the greatest hits of the 1980s, Killing Moon goes on an album with those other yeah. ones. But yeah, it's it's definitely on there. It's also a testament to how good this album is that The Killing Moon doesn't necessarily stand out as, oh, the obvious best track on this album. Like, it fits in with the other eight. Yeah, yeah. It very well. It uh, it does. It fits in with the album, and it doesn't uh, steal the show from the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, not you know? at all. Not at all. 
this is a much more this is a much more tonal album. It's much less dissonant. It's much less mm-hmm. political, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, but it's also more joyous. Is that the yeah, word I'm looking for? I think so. They uh, recorded with the orchestra in Paris, and a lot of the songs are kind of inspired by their surroundings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's less, yeah, less politically charged uh, le- and more kind of... Um, it's more alive, yeah, I think. It's more about feel of the album. Yeah, feel of yeah. how they're... It's more emotional than uh, political. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's all... And it's very catchy also. The most catchy one of, oh, of yeah, the five. Oh, yeah, God, big time, yeah. Um, they recorded a, a couple other sessions in Liverpool and in Bath. I think the Killing Moon was one of the Liverpool sessions because uh, so, it doesn't have the orchestra yeah, it in it. Would be. But, <laughs> but, but even without the orchestra, it fits in, you know, because yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. it has such an evocative sound and tone. And uh, one of my favorite parts, too, is just that when you think the song's over, there's still two minutes mm-hmm. of, of song left. Yeah. It just yeah. keeps going. Yeah. I think it's a great song. And, Generally, with this show, I've tried to, with a band, get the album, get the earliest album uh, that would be relevant to the show. Their first album came out in 1980, but I didn't want to buy anything that didn't have The Killing Moon on it, (laughs) to be quite honest. I had to just get this one because that's what I wanted to listen to. Well, I mean, that's the the question, right? And we talk about it with, uh, what was the band that we were just talking about it with 30 minutes ago, that you either go for... The, the early, well, it was Joy Division, right? You oh. go for the the first album that comes mm-hmm. out where you get that kind of raw sound and that sort right. of immediate, like, here's here's what we're, here's what we're coming into the game with. Mm-hmm. Or you go with their kind of later, more mature right. stuff where you don't necessarily have that kind of explosion of passion, but it's it's better in terms of musical quality mm-hmm. and maturity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think, uh, yeah, with closer, all members of the band were better musicians this yeah. time around, but right. The songs didn't have the same evocative quality that I think yeah. they did. Whereas I think I went, I did listen to some of the earlier echo and the Bunnymen, And I think this is kind of the best of both worlds. I think they got better musicians there, or they became better musicians and better songwriters. And, it's still it's the most repeat listenable yeah definitely of the batch yeah that one i'm keeping yeah that's a good one (laughs) i I think and two um one other group who started off probably in the post-punk genre who became probably the most successful post-punk band you could argue is u2 Mm-hmm. They started their group alongside, just as just as Susie did, just as uh, as the Joy Division guys did, by seeing a Sex Pistols show and just knowing that anybody can make I a band. I didn't know yeah. that. So uh, those guys formed a group, and all, and their earlier songs, uh, you can kind of hear the influence. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. Especially with Bono, when you think about the post punk croon, and then just listen to Bono's vocals. Yeah, you kind of start to see like, oh. That's who you were listening to at the time. Oh, that's interesting. Does that also make you two the biggest sellout band of all time? A hundred percent. Okay, does. good. That yeah, yeah, I can confirm that. Eclipsing the Sex Pistols. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They sold out very soon and for they much sold less out than you two. Immediately. <laughs> yeah. They they there was not a pre sellout period with the Sex Pistols. But even in U 2s early career, um, they had. One of their singles, uh, 11 O'Clock TikTok, produced by Martin Hannett, who was the Joy Division producer. And he was going to produce their first album, Boy, but it was being made 
very shortly after uh, Ian Curtis's suicide, and so he was not in the mood right, to right. work at that time. Oh wow! But, uh, yeah, so it's. Uh, I mean, that makes sense. I just would not have ever thought of you mm-hmm. two as coming out of that. But there, but there again, like there's the influence of punk music that right. honestly, literally everything comes out of. Mm-hmm. And then you go to the next generation of you two, and then REM, Nirvana. Mm-hmm. You get into alternative music in the '90s, uh, and all of those bands are going back to these yeah. bands and saying, "Oh, we listen to Gang of Four. Oh, we listen to Mission of Burma. Mm-hmm. Oh, we." Uh, we titled our album Versus. I'm sure that's a coincidence. Yeah, Pearl right? Jam definitely yeah. just named that in tribute to Mission <laughs> Burma. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's funny just to see this big game of telephone that goes from one band to another and yep. then little tweaks here and there that become a totally new yeah. new thing. Uh, you can kind of hear it like we played um, Bolt the Blue Sky back in the mm-hmm. uh, Thriller and Four Others episode where uh, you can hear you can, you can hear that sound on Joshua Tree the most probably in that song mm-hmm. whereas the other ones get to that more stadium rock anthem kind yep, of yep. kind of sound but yeah the you can hear that early drum and bass and vocal croon that uh, that that they had that they sort of like we said the, the whole episode right you either evolve to to m- meet the masses or yep. you continue selling just to the hardcore fans and it all goes back to McLaren <laughs> yep. He made a lot of money for a lot of people. Yeah. Well done. But that's uh that's post punk. I think this was a good kind of overview of the genre. Yeah. We got five good albums. Um next up next wait, week. Wait, 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 go oh. back, go back, go back. What was the sixth? Did you have a cause you I know you go through the I know you go through mm-hmm. the genre and you pick out like five emblematic ones, but I have to assume you've got a list of 15 and you just gradually knock and them off. Was there one that didn't make What's funny is one one that was going to be in this episode was Talking Heads. Okay. A lot of them classified that as post-punk, yeah. but listening to it, I was like, it fits more in with the new wave, I think. Dumped them in with new wave. So yeah, yeah. that was where... Okay. Uh, that was one that got So we got, we got to we it. We got it in okay, there. Okay, yeah. good, good, good. Okay, next week. Yeah, next week uh, we've go- we're going to hardcore punk, which nice. is... Uh, Pretty much, actually, it is entirely American. All these groups uh, toured, uh, formed and toured throughout the U.S. So Black Flag uh, and four other albums. Black Flag and four others. Yeah. Uh, then uh, that'll be, this is kind of, this stretch is kind of still all that punk influence, right? Mm-hmm. What the late 70s punk exploded into and splintered off into all these different groups. Uh, so next week, we'll listen to that. That That'll be probably some, uh, I won't say all, but some of the shortest albums, because very few songs clock in at yeah. more than two minutes or so. That is the thing that kind of turned me off to a lot of these post-punk albums, because it's mm-hmm. very much the the same sensibility that you get from modern art, like the challenging, mm-hmm. uh, the challenge, the challenge to the mainstream, the provocative, the in-your-faceness. But when you look at a painting that does that, you look at it. You internalize it, you get the message, and then you move on to the next one. And that whole process mm-hmm. takes a minute, right. right? You can get that kind of same thing from listening to an album like Mission of Burma or Gang of Four, but then there's 33 more minutes left in the album. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, got it, got it, move on. <laughs> yeah, Give me something I can whistle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Black I'll... Flag, 20-minute album, I'm good. Yeah, exactly. I'm, on, I'm on board. I'm get on in, board. get out. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. That'll be next week. Uh, thank you, Aaron, for joining me thank as you. always. And and let's see. Well, we let's go back. We heard Ocean Rain, Echo and the Bunnymen. We heard Mission of Burma. We heard Susie and the Banshees, Gang of Four, Joy Division, 
It sounds to me like we heard the eight. We heard the eight. I'll see you next week. See. You. Thanks for listening to Andy. Here's the eighties. I wanted to quickly correct myself before we go. Gang of Four was signed to EMI right from their very first album, and they would release their first four on the major label. Let me know what some of your favorite 80s post-punk albums are by sending me an email at andyhearsthe80s at gmail.com. That's 80s spelled out, E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S, at gmail.com. Or follow me on Twitter at andyhearsit. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. <laughs>